Welcome to Mysterious Circumstances Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, and my co-host joining me today for this very interesting topic is Jessica. Jessica, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Jessica. I'm from Northeast Ohio. I am currently a practicing witch, and I'm here to help Justin out with some of the information regarding our topic today. So today, our topic is the Witch of Aldern, Isabel Gowdy. As we get rolling in the episode, you're going to find out why this woman and her confessions in particular are still highly debated into the 21st century, like seriously debated. And because it's one of the more detailed and more amazing and also more fantastical of uh, confessions that you've ever seen in any witchcraft um, trial because she gave four documented confessions that were extremely detailed. I, I, I am going to say something before we do get started on this episode. Okay. Because when this topic popped up in your iTunes feed or whatever podcast app you're using, you probably rolled your eyes. I heard about half my listeners eyes roll in the back of their head because this is a, you know, it's it's a different topic. It is a subject that some people do not consider legitimate. But I will tell you this right now, like the practice of witchcraft in general is something that was a belief system and a way of life for people for thousands of years. So, you know, before you think that your religion is better than somebody else's belief system or your belief system is better than their belief system, just sit back and check yourself real quick and maybe possibly, you know, if you think this is total bullshit, maybe you should check what you believe in, you know, and I'm not trying to trying to be mean about it when I say that, but you know, whether you're Christian, atheist, agnostic, it doesn't really matter. Everybody believes in different things. And like I said, this, this belief system of witchcraft and the practice of magic, this was a way of life for a lot of people for thousands of years. So just remember that. Would you like to say anything on that topic, Jessica? Well, witchcraft is a very diverse subject. It's practiced differently all across the world. I mean, I might practice different than you or somebody two streets down or somebody in Jamaica. It's very different. There's very different beliefs everywhere. So something that I believe to be true may not be true to somebody else and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And with witchcraft, nothing is really wrong because witchcraft itself can't be proven to be right. Exactly. Very good point. It's a very long, long tradition and often it's it's passed down. It's literally the oldest, before it even had a name, it it was the oldest form of a belief system known to man. Wasn't it called the old religion? That's exactly what it was called. And then, you know, it it got a name and, you know, the word magic popped up and things, uh, you know, got taken out of context. People's belief systems prevailed over this particular one and paganism in general, depending on what specific thing under the umbrella of paganism uh, as a belief system. You know, it was almost wiped off the face of the earth during the Crusades and you know, Christianity killed a lot of these beliefs, but not before stealing a lot of their traditions. <laughs> so <clears throat> a lot of my Christian listeners out there, 
go back in time, do a little bit of research, educate yourself before you judge anybody that says they are a pagan or a witch or, you know, practices anything different from you. That's all we can ask. Keep an open mind. So I guess you're awfully quiet over there, Jessica. You were all chatty for the last hour and a half. I'm listening. (laughs) (laughs) No, like for those of you who don't know, me and Jessica have literally been talking for about two hours off off record, just pretty much about anything and everything. Are you still nervous? Can I ask you that? Oh, incredibly. (laughs) It'll be totally fine. Don't worry about it. Um, I feel a little bit nauseous. Everybody can can sense your fear so (laughs) (laughs) i don't mean to Uh, no you're good so in order to tell isabel's story correctly we have to put into context the time period there was a lot of stuff going on there you know from 1590 to 1662 in scotland alone there were five separate witch hunts and trials several trials that weren't even considered witch hunts you know it's estimated anywhere upwards of six thousand witches Mm -hmm. were tried found guilty and eventually executed and it's yeah the salem witch trials were bad i'm not going to downplay that you know how that happened but in this part of europe and even around uh denmark and sweden a friend of mine from sweden gave me some information on the swedish some early swedish witch trials as well and um you know we will include that information eventually but it's downplayed a lot because nobody ever really talks about it as much, especially not in America because America didn't really experience anything like that. So, you know, if, if you, if you go over to Europe, like the knowledge is a lot more deeper on these subjects. So me and Jessica are going to educate you a little bit and pretty much how these witch trials started was, I mean, initially by Mary queen of Scots, queen of the Scots, you know, and that, that was pretty early on a little bit of info about Mary queen of the Scots. Um, she took the throne when her father was killed. Um, she was only six days old when she became queen, which is super interesting. Um, but she ended up having a son and the son became known as King James, the sixth of Scotland. Now he eventually took the throne at uh, 13 months old in 1567. When Queen Elizabeth I died in 1603, King James became King James I. That was over all of uh, Britain, and he had that throne until his death in 1625. Now, King James is an interesting guy. For those of you who are kind of, you know, maybe catching on, King James the sixth of Scotland is the man responsible for the King James version of the Bible. And this will be brought up uh, later in the episode, but basically a little bit of his backstory. He was, he traveled a lot. Uh, he was in Denmark in uh, the late 1580s and he met Anne of Denmark who he decided to marry. I believe she was only like 15 or 16 years old at the time, but while he was over abroad, he started seeing a lot of witch trials going on and he realized that his part of the country really wasn't doing anything like that. Like not of that magnitude, they were having witch trials on like specific individuals and stuff like that, but nothing to the magnitude that, that Denmark and Sweden were doing in Sweden specifically, 
you know, 1668 to 1676, which is a little bit after our time frame, there were 400 women um, executed for witchcraft. It was mainly in the small cities in the middle of Sweden and to the north. Uh, Stockholm only had eight women killed. Uh, but the biggest trial and executions did take place in, I cannot pronounce this word, Torsaker, Torsaker. Uh, in 1675, and on June 1st, there were 71 people who were executed. That amounted to one out of five women in the entire region of that area. Even going to Scotland in this time frame, after it was all said and done, after all the witch trials of, of Scotland, and we're going to concentrate mainly on Scotland, per capita, Scotland had the most people put to death due to the witch trials. So they were very on top of this. And a lot of this was because of King James. Now, when he came back to Scotland after traveling abroad, uh, him and Anne of Denmark had like a little, you know, makeshift wedding. Uh, it wasn't anything official, but I can't remember the exact name that they called it. But in 1589, Anne of Denmark is traveling to Scotland so they can have their official marriage. And what happens is there's it was a really bad storm season and all these storms started breaking out. What happened was Anne of Denmark's ship got hit by this really bad storm and they couldn't make it to Scotland. They had to stop at Norway. Well, because of a witch trial that he had seen Basically, when he got back home, there was, there was a couple of people accused of witchcraft. And what they ended up doing was they went around and they ended up rallying up six women who confessed under torture to causing the storms by ways of supernatural means. They were tried as witches and they were killed. So King James, besides commissioning his own version of the Bible, which is still very, very prominent today, for those of you who do follow the King James Version of the Bible, just realize that this was literally commissioned by one single person. So he has the power to leave out certain things. He has the power to include certain things. And I want you to remember that as we're going forward, because that will play a factor going into the future. But a lot of people don't realize that King James actually wrote something himself. He hand wrote it himself in 1597, and it was a book called Demonology. And Demonology included information on witchcraft, demons, and the devil. Because not only was King James interested in this subject, but it is stated several times over that he was pretty much obsessed with it. So he writes this book, and this book is actually the basis for the three witches in, in uh, William Shakespeare's Macbeth as well. So there's a little bit of knowledge for you right there. And he actually wrote this book after attending a witch trial in 1596, the year before he wrote it. And it was a guy named Christian Stewart who had um, supposedly killed a guy named Patrick uh, Ruthven by ways of witchcraft. And for some odd reason, King James took a really, really personal interest in this case. And this is after his experiences abroad and stuff like that. And this is what actually inspired him to pen this book called Demonology in 1597. So in 1563, 
The Scottish Witchcraft Act was passed. 63 Act was only punishable by death if it resulted in death or harm. Other offenses were only punishable by imprisonment. So it wasn't like a big deal to just practice. If you killed somebody or hurt somebody, that was one thing. 1604-1. Yeah, and that would be a year right after he became King King James I of England. And that's when he decided that it was time that anybody practicing witchcraft for any reason was punishable death by death. It didn't matter if they hurt somebody or not. Now, the Scottish, Scottish witch hunts are pretty much what ensued. Now, after the six women confessed to being witches and sabotaging his wife, Anne of Denmark, who did survive, she ended up coming over to Scotland. They did get married. After that, in 1590 to 1591, there were several witch hunts beforehand. Most notably, 1550 was a really big one. But there were five separate witch trials and witch hunts in Scotland from 1590 to 1662. Now, the first one was from about 1590 to 1591. That one was the direct result of the whole storm situation with the Anne of of Denmark ship. Uh, This lasted a year there. I believe there was a total of about 400 people that were uh, brought to trial, and I think I read anywhere from two to 300 were actually executed. The second one happened in 1597. Now, there was a lot of plague and famine, and this was right around the time that he did write the book Demonology, so that might have sparked another one, because the plague and famine, people thought that they were being bewitched, so there was another witch hunt. Another one from the year 1628 to 1631. We're not exactly sure, and there's not really any speculation on what might have caused this one. Uh, The fourth one was from 1649 to 1650. And this one was really interesting just because they were having a lot of bad harvests. They were having a lot of bad weather. So, of course, they think it is the work of witchcraft. So there was another witch hunt. The fifth and final one went on from 1661 to 1662. And you actually had brought up when we were talking about, you know, the Witchcraft Act and stuff like that. And the, you know, torture that might have been posed. You brought up Agnes Sampson. Well, Agnes Sampson was pretty fascinating. Um, She was a very well-known and well-respected elderly woman from Humby. And her, along with Dr. John Fion, who was a schoolmaster, were both prosecuted together. Both of them refused to confess, but both of them were put to severe torture. Agnes was brought before King James in a council of nobles. She denied all of her charges, but after being tortured horrifically, she confessed. But after she confessed, her head and her body hair were all shaved. She was kept without sleep. She was fastened to the wall of her own cell by a witch's bridle. I don't think a lot of people know what that is, but that's a cast iron, basically like a a bridle you would use for a horse, but it has four prongs. Two stick into the tongue and two stick into the cheeks. Your mouth is basically forced open by these metal prongs that anytime you try to speak or close your mouth, it will draw blood. After that, she confessed to all 53 indictments against her. So this poor woman, she was in her 70s when this happened. 
And this was at the tail end of the very first witch hunt, yes. which was yes. supposedly, that was supposedly one of the worst out of the five of Scotland. It, it was oh my goodness, brutal. I can only imagine. Well, after she was, she confessed to everything after the witch's bridal, she was also walked, which was walking around basically in circles for days at a time with no food, no water, nothing. And eventually people started to hallucinate. Mm-hmm. She was walked and eventually she confessed and she was finally strangled and then burned as a witch. She died in January of 1591. Yeah, and that was one fact I found really interesting because they were talking about hanging and burning at the stake, and there's actually a difference between England and Scotland in that time frame on what people would do. But there were certain certain people in, in the Scottish witch trials that I found that were strangled and then burned at the stake. They didn't choose one or the other. They would do both a lot of times and I, th- I thought that was really intriguing just to see how two different countries in the same time period had different ways of doing things and you'll see that when we get into the folklore part of the episode when we start touching on people's certain beliefs and you know stories that are passed down and information like that it's really interesting to see just how different some of these little details are. I did notice that looking up a bunch of the trials that a lot of people were strangled and then burned. The other man that was tried with her was Dr. John Fion. He was the schoolmaster. His torture was completely different. He had his fingernails forcibly removed and then had iron pins pushed into his fingers. (sighs) The finger screws, which (sighs) would tighten down and break your fingers. The boot, which some people may have heard of, but basically the boot was this, basically like an Iron Maiden for your leg. It would break the bones in your leg and in your foot. He was finally taken to Castle Hill in Edinburgh and burned at the stake. And that was the 16th of December. So he died just before Agnes. Jeez. Craziness. So the torture they used on these people, I mean, even now I would confess. Oh, yeah. I would confess to being a Buddhist or worshiping Satan if if those tortures were imposed on me. I mean, that's horrific. And it's amazing that these people, a schoolmaster and an elderly woman, could hold out for that long. Yeah, and it literally got to the point where they were like, they couldn't take it anymore, and they're like, just kill me. I did whatever you said I did. Just kill me. Exactly. It was after that trial... That trial, it was in North Brunswick that Mm -hmm. that trial took place. That's when King James decided that he was going to take it upon himself to hunt down witches. He set up royal commissions, and he actually recommended torture when dealing with suspects. Yes, he did. And he's known to have personally supervised the torture of especially women being accused of witches. I noticed that, too. I noticed that, too. He was very hands-on, so to speak, when it came to the torture and being there, you know, right right up front. You know, he was very, very adamant about being there. It's And like we were talking earlier, you look at the King James Version compared to, of the Bible, compared to some other versions. Um, You had actually mentioned a really good point about information that was left out. By him. Well, anything that involved magic in a positive way, such as the disciples or anything using magic for a good reason, no matter what it was, 
was left out of the King James Version. And there were things added in to condemn people that involved themselves with witchcraft. That is correct. And it's fascinating to see those changes. It really, really is. Like when you start getting into it, I can't stress enough. A lot of people don't realize that the King James Version of the Bible was literally commissioned by one man. And it was looked over and it was approved. And what he wanted in there was in there. And what he wanted left out was left out. Even up until April 10th of 1662, it got really interesting because a privy council made a proclamation that prohibited torture being used as a means to secure a confession by anybody accused of witchcraft unless it was specifically authorized by that council in particular. The council said they these people should be found guilty only if the confessions had been volunteered without torture. What year did they say that was? April 10th, 1662. And the thing about April 10th, 1662 is this is three days before Isabel Gowdy gives her first confession. And when we get into Isabel here in a minute, it's still debated on whether or not she was accused and arrested or if she voluntarily walked into the magistrate and, and openly confessed. It's still, I've actually read a lot less of her being accused and arrested. I've ever, almost everything that I read and we read a lot of stuff says that she did Mm -hmm. walk into the magistrate and openly confess, you know, for what reasons we don't know. I mean, we'll get into that, but this was three days before her first confession. They basically were saying they should be found guilty only if the confessions had been volunteered without torture If the person accused was mentally stable and the person accused did not uh, wish to die. So basically they could not be known as having like a death wish. If those three things were confirmed, then that person would be found guilty by the council and eventually executed. So, you know, later on in the witch trials, they did actually try to do something about it because by this time shit was getting out of hand. They were arresting people left and right. Like I said, they were killing, they killed people in the thousands, you know, over, you know, almost a hundred year periods, like a 70 year period. So it was getting pretty crazy over there at about this point. Scotland is about the quarter the size of England, but it had three times the number of witch prosecutions as England did. So about four to 6,000 people over an entire period were tried. Those executed were estimated to be over 1,500 people. 75% of those were women. Yep. Pretty crazy uh, stuff. So there was obviously a stereotype, especially there based is. on King James' de- demonology. Yeah. He definitely yeah. wrote how a witch is supposed to be, what to look for. And the Scottish witch trials were very notable for their use of pricking. Which is an odd thing to use, but there were people that would go around trying to find witches, and they would use this method called pricking, and they had this little device that had a needle on it, and it was believed that if they possessed the devil's mark, they wouldn't feel pain, but these little prickers had a needle, but one end was dull and one end was sharp. 
so they could easily go around and just find somebody that they didn't like or had accusations against them and use the dull end and huh. convict them of witchcraft. And there were two professional prickers that are documented, <laughs> and those are John Kincaid and John Dick. Those helped set off the outbreak of witch hunting from 1661 to 1662, and they were exposed as frauds later on, and that helped end the witch trials. That's extremely interesting information right there. I think it's fascinating how they could just decide who lived and who died by a poke of a needle. Oh, for sure, yeah. Like, literally, it, it didn't take much. It really didn't take much at all. And like, one of the common methods of torture back then was walking the witch. Like I said mm-hmm. before, any witch suspected was sleep-deprived and walked for about two to three days. And often, if you're dehydrated, you're hungry, you've been walking for three days, you're going to start hallucinating. And it provided some really exotic details for the witch trials, which is why they, they started that law that said you can't torture people because things are getting a little out of hand. They're hearing about some crazy stuff that doesn't make sense. That's why they put an end to it. It definitely helped. And it's really interesting. The timing too of, of Isabel, because there's no record of her even really being alive before her marriage to uh, you know, a guy named John Gilbert. Do you want to introduce us to Isabel Gowdy? Sure. I mean, Isabel was fascinating. Obviously, as you said, there's really no record of her. I mean, I tried every source I could. I couldn't find anything on her. She was married to John Gilbert. Her first confession was on April, uh, April 13th of 1662. Her second took place a couple weeks later, May 3rd, then May 15th, and then May 27th. There's yeah, and there's no record whatsoever for life or death. Yeah, and there's still a lot of debate on whether or not she voluntarily walked into the courtroom. I did read somewhere where she uh, was arrested and taken to Morayshire. I hope I pronounced that right. Not butchering the Scottish language over here, but so you do have that little bit of variance. But yeah, after her and John got married, they moved to a place uh, called Lockloy in the Highlands mm-hmm. and it was just a few miles North of Aldern. Um, John was pretty much like a poor laborer uh, for, for his work. He was given a small cabin and a small piece of land. Isabel was pretty much a housewife. She was illiterate, um, but she was said to have been a good storyteller and she had a great imagination as well, even though she was illiterate. So, you know, that might play a little bit of factor, you know, when we get into the, uh, get into the episodes but when she either got arrested or walked into the courtroom you know what she told the people in there is one of the most detailed accounts there were four confessions given over this six-week period and the thing that blows everybody's mind is that over this course of time her story never changed all the details remain the same Uh, there's no variation in her stories whatsoever And she gets into some seriously detailed information. So let's go ahead and talk about the confessions a little bit, Jessica. And, you know, from me and you talking earlier, and we've been talking a lot like the past week and stuff, this was more 
more your thing than mine. So why don't you uh, take us through the uh, confessions? Sure, of course. First, I think it's a definitely notable fact that Isabel's husband was employed by John Hay of Park and Lockloy. And on her confessions, one of the things they note who's present during her confessions. Two of the people present during her confessions are Henry Hay and Hugh Hay. I'm not sure if those are relatives of her husband's employer or not, but it definitely could have had some influence during her confessions. But one of the things that struck me during her confessions, she went in seemingly within, without being arrested, without tortured, nothing, on April 13th, 1662. And the first question that's documented is, how did you meet the devil? That struck me as a little bit odd. There's mm-hmm. no documentation as to what happened before. It's just, how did you meet the devil? Her answer was, as I was going between the farmsteads of Drumdwind and the Heads, I met the devil and there made a sort of covenant with him. I promised to meet him during the night here in the Kirk of Aldern, which, which, which I was did. a church. Exactly. Then they just asked, what happened? And this was in, she says all this happened in 1647, right? Like 15 years before she actually volunteered, started That's volunteering. That's a great question. I don't, I don't have a date for that confession. <laughs> like when that <laughs> confession actually took place. Well, the, but, the actual confession was like on April 13th, 1662, but she said she met the devil and joined that coven in 1647. So she had actually been right. a witch for 15 years. So she goes on to say... After they asked her what happened during that night where she met the devil. The first thing I did that night was deny my baptism. Then I put one of my hands on the crown of my head and the other on the sole of my foot and renounced all between my two hands to the devil. He was in the reader's desk with a black book in his hand. Margaret Brody from Aldern held me up to the devil to be baptized by him. And he marked me on the shoulder and sucked out my blood from the mark and spat it onto his hand and sprinkled it on my head, saying, I baptize thee, Janet, in my own name. They don't ask any questions about this. That's what drives me insane. They don't ask any questions about this. They just said, and then? Like, they didn't really care at all. Mm -mm. They didn't care to see if she was making it up. They didn't care to see if she was hallucinating, if she was just done. They just said, and then? Yep. And all she said was, after a while, we all left. Yep. He said, where did you next meet the devil? Next time I met him was in the new wards of Inshock. I am so sorry. I'm American and I might not pronounce <laughs> it right. I didn't know how to pronounce that word it's, either. It's basically an old ruined castle or a keep near the farm where she lived with her husband. They asked what happened at that meeting. He had sex with me. How did the devil appear to you? So the fact that she had sex with the devil had no meaning. They just wanted to know what he looked like. She says, he was big, dark, hairy man, and very cold. I found this come cold within me as a spring well water. Sometimes he had boots and sometimes shoes on his feet. But his feet were always forked and cloven. Sometimes Mm -hmm. he would be with us as a deer or a roe. And they then asked the question, tell us about the things you did in his name. Now, if I were a sane person asking somebody about this, that would not be my first question. If somebody is talking about dealings with somebody that is dark, hairy, cold, and has cloven feet, I'm going to ask a hundred questions before I ask, what did you do in his name? But apparently that didn't matter. They ask, tell us 
the things that you did in his name. And she goes on to implicate John Taylor and his wife, Janet Fridheed, from Belkinikeet. Yeah, I couldn't pronounce that either. <laughs> so I'm letting you do all of it. Well, they basically all met in the churchyard in Nairn and raised an unchristened child from its grave. Yeah. And at the end of Fredley's cornfield. And all of this takes place. I mean, they're describing the location and everything. Basically, they, they took the child and clippings from their own finger and toenails and drops of grain and kale leaves, packed them all up into little pieces and mixed them together. They put part of it among the dung heaps and Bradley's land. That way we took away the fruit of his corn and all. Basically, they soured his crops. He yeah. wouldn't get any crops anymore. What he did have, they took and they shared amongst themselves. And she hmm. said, when we steal corn at Lamas, we only take two sheaves when the corn is ripe or two stalks of kale or thereabouts and then gives the fruit of the cornfield or kale yard where they grew. And it might be we kept it until Yule or Easter and then divided it amongst us. I'm not really sure how they preserved corn and kale for that long, but apparently they stole corn and kale from this one farmer and instead of asking questions about that, he says, how many are you? This guy questioning seems to have a very direct approach to her questioning. He doesn't care about the details. He wants to know specific things. So when he asks, how many are you? She says, there are 13 persons in my coven. He asks, where do you meet? She answers, the last time our coven met, we and another coven dancing in the Earl Seat Hills. The time before that, we met between Manus and Buckles, and before that, we met beyond the Meikle Barn. The other couple was in Downey Hills, so we went over to join them and met up near the houses at the wood end of Inchok. She replies, after a while, we went home. They ask, when did you meet after that? She answers, before Candlemas. We went at the east of Kinloch, and we yoked a Pudluck Pow, which I guess is a frog plow. Yeah, I think so. The devil held the plow and John Young from Mabelston, our officer, and drew it. Then they ask about the pud- puddock plow. She says, puddocks drew the plow like oxen. The traces were made of dog grass. His coulter was made of half golden ram's horn and a bit of horn that was used as blade. We've run around two or three times with all of us in the coven, going along the while, while up and down through the plow praying to the devil for the fruit of the land and that thistles and briars might grow there. So I'm guessing she's asking for the fruit of their land and for instead them to get weeds. And again, instead of asking questions about that, he asks, what else does your coven get up to? And she answers, we sneak into any house, we steal food and drink, and we fill up the barrels with our own piss again. We put besoms in bed beside our husbands until we return to them again. We were in the Earl of Moray's house in Darnaway. We got plenty there and ate and drank only the best and took some away with us. This is where her confession seems to take a little bit of a turn towards food and drinks. Yeah, she mentions that a lot about eating the best foods. And I mean, it, it probably speaks to her social status quite a bit because, I mean, like I said, we don't know much about her, but... She starts mentioning a lot about going into people's houses and eating the best food and drinking the best drink and and that kind of stuff. And then 
she mentions uh, how she would escape at night. You know, how, you know, basically, how did your husband not know you were gone in the night? And she would put a broom in her place that would basically manifest into a double that looked like her. And that's how she was able to go out and about and do her thing. Yeah, she seems to really concentrate on food and drink quite a bit during her confessions. And, I mean, any poor person during the 1600s would. I mean, they would fantasize about being able to have a full stomach. It's not like now where you you can go to church drop-offs or get donations or anything like that. I mean, they would go hungry for days. So for somebody that wasn't wealthy in any way, shape, or form, were renting the land, working for the land, that was a big deal. Yeah, and if you had a bad harvest season, everybody's going to be hurting. Exactly. But the next question is, how did you get in? And she says, we went in at the windows. They asked her again, what else will you confess? This is where it starts taking a little more of a magical turn, I guess you could say. She says, I had a little horse, and I would say, horse and haddock in the devil's name. And then we would fly away wherever we would, like straw flying about in the highway. We can fly like straw when we want. Grass straw and corn stalks are like horses to us. We just put them between our feet and say, horse and haddock in the devil's name. If anyone sees us, sees the straw in the whirlwind and doesn't bless himself, we can shoot them dead if we want. Anyone shot by us, their soul goes to heaven, but their bodies stay with us. They will fly to us like horses as small as straws. If somebody told me that, I would have so many questions. Apparently, this is a regular thing, though, because the, the questioner says, anything else? And she says, I was in the Downy Hills and was dined there by the Queen of the Fairy. More food than I can eat. Again, about food. The Queen of Fairy is finely clothed in white linens and brown and white clothes, etc. The King of the Fairies is fine-looking man, well-built, broad-faced, etc. And there were elf bulls rolling and roistering up and down, and they scared me. When we take away any cow's milk, we pull hairs from the tail and twine it and plate it the wrong way in the devil's name. And then we draw his handmade tether between the cow's hind feet and now between its forefeet in the devil's name and that we take cow's milk with us. We take sheep milk too. The way to take or give milk back again is to cut that tether. So she starts going on about food again. Mm-hmm. Even with the cows and the sheep, she starts going on with food and drink again. It's really interesting for that and the fact that uh, the Queen of the Fairies elf fame comes up a lot in the Scottish witch trials. That particular, she really does. That, that particular form, form of folklore is very prominent in almost all the witch trials, which is super interesting. And even the ones in England at the time as well. Super interesting. I mean, she is very interesting, and it's also inter- interesting that she may have been so well-known that the person documenting all of this, instead of documenting everything, simply wrote, et cetera. Yeah, they literally, and they literally wrote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, when it came to yeah. when she started talking about all her involvement with the Fairy Queen, they literally in the confession were like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and it's... Like me and you were talking earlier, that could be because they were so familiar with it or because, 
I did read somewhere where somebody had theorized that maybe it was because she was speaking so fast that the scribes couldn't keep up with her because she was getting so excited and fast paced with her narration of what happened that the scribes couldn't couldn't keep up. So they just kept writing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I mean, that's definitely possible, but I don't believe it. I mean, but like, yeah, I don't think that's the case yeah. personally, but it is theorized, you know? Yes. And it's definitely, I mean, any theory is a valid theory, especially when we don't have evidence of any other circumstances having happened. As for the theory of skipping over things because she was talking too fast, I think it would have been more than just the tales of meeting the fairy queen and the fairy king. I think it would have been the sexual encounters as well that she would have sped through, especially being raised a Christian woman. Yeah, she was and she what? was born and raised a, a Catholic, and she converted to Pro- Protestant, I believe. Yes, yeah, her husband was Protestant. But um, as one man put it, John Callow from the Ethical Podcast, he made a very good point that when documenting all of this, she went on to talk about the fairies, and they kind of scratched that out. But when she talks about her sexual dealings with the devil, they made sure to to definitely document that in detail, a lot of detail. And she talked about it multiple times, and that is never, never had an et cetera added to it. Mm -hmm. It's only her dealings with the fairies that has et cetera, et cetera, et cetera added to it. It says a lot because it tells you, you know, what people were more interested in, whether it be the folklore or the down and dirty details of, Meetings with with the devil. Exactly. I mean, especially if fairies were common folklore. And, the, and common, it was. Which they I were. I mean, it's, it, it, it was. still is. You had said something to me last fairies. night about that, actually. Uh, you, you made a really good point. You were saying that fairy folklore is compared to something in America. I can't remember exactly what it was. Yeah, like with fairy folklore, especially through Ireland and Scotland... They treat fairy mounds, which are considered sacred spaces for fairies, just like we treat Indian burial grounds. You know there's something that's not okay with that area. You are not supposed to live on it. You are not supposed to farm on it. You leave it alone. But America is a very new country, especially compared to somewhere like Scotland, who is thousands of years old. They Mm -hmm. have their very own folklore where we really don't. All we can really do is adapt the Native American folklore. But theirs has been passed down generation to generation to generation. So fairies are a big part of their culture. Very true. So somewhere like a fairy mound or tales of the fairy queen or fairy king or just fairy folk in general are going to be a big story like our Santa Claus to them. So I feel it's more likely that they just thought these were tales that were told over and over and over and didn't feel the need to reiterate. Because they've already heard it a hundred times. Because like we had stated earlier, this is the very tail end, the fifth witch hunt. By this point in time, they've probably heard the stories about dealings with the fairies Probably a cup, a few over. Exactly. The furthest they can tra- trace back 
where this fairy queen first appeared in literature was the legend of Thomas the Rhymer. And that was in 1220 to 1298. That was 400 years before this. So it's not like it wasn't a well-known thing. Whether or not she was illiterate or not doesn't matter. These tales would be passed down. Yeah, and that's... I don't want to downplay the intelligence of of the listeners, but that's what folklore is. It's something that's spoken and passed down through generation and generation. So, I mean, it would make total sense. Exactly. And folklore, I mean, folklore is amazing. It can be written or orally passed down. The majority of it is orally passed down and then written down by others. Yes, yes. And that's how but we know even about so, it. We, you know? Yes. And we all know about fairies. We have all heard of a fairy, whether mm-hmm. it was Tinkerbell or those portraits from the 1800s that feature the girl standing in the fairies. Oh, place. yeah. We've all heard or seen something about fairies. So it's not just Scotland. It's all over the world that people know about them. So in the 1600s, when that was prevalent to their culture, to their land, that was going to be passed down from person to person to person. Whether it was saying, beware of doing this, or be careful to do that, it was something that was passed down from parent to child in every generation. And even after that, her confessions continue. They don't ask her about the fairies, about her dealings with the fairies, nothing like that. She goes on to say, when we take away the strength from anyone's ale and give it to someone else, we take a little drop from each barrel or stand of ale and put it in a jug in the devil's name. And in his name, with our own hands, we mix it to the other person's ale, and this gives her all the strength and body and goodness of our neighbor's ale. To prevent us from getting the ale, it should be well blessed, and then we have no power over it. So basically, she says that you have to bless it same as you would, I don't know, the wine of the Eucharist or whatever, so that they can't get to it. And then, again, (laughs) instead of asking questions, (laughs) they say, from where do you get this power? And she says, we get all our power from the devil. When we ask him for it, we call him our Lord. They say, what else can you do with this power? And it seems to skip a bit. Because she goes on to say that, again, John Taylor and his wife, Janet Breadheath, Bessie Wilson from Aldern, Margaret Wilson, Donald Callum, and herself, they all made a clay image of the king of Laird of Park's male children. John Taylor brought the clay home in a fold of his plaid, and his wife broke it into very small, like meal pieces. She sifted it in a sieve and poured water into it, in the devil's name, and kneaded it as hard until it looked like fried dough. And then she made an image of the Laird's sons, and it has all the parts and features of a child, head, eyes, nose, feet, mouth, and little lips. It wanted none of a child's features. And its hands were folded down by its sides. Its texture was like a crab or a scraped and scalded piglet. So basically, she says that her and these other people made an effigy of the Laird of Park's children, which is interesting in itself because it's, it's almost reminiscent of what we see now as a wax doll, 
as some people would use, or a, as some people would say, voodoo doll, even though that's not the intention of it. But it's interesting how those correspond. And she goes on to say, we put its face near the fire until it shriveled with heat. Then we put it amongst the hot embers until it glowed like red coal. After that, we have roasted it now and then, every other day, and part of it will be well-roasted. All the Laird's male children will suffer by it if it isn't found and broken, as well as those who have been born and died already. It was still being put in and out of the fire in the devil's name. It was hung upon a peg. It's still there in John Taylor's house and has a clay cradle around it. So she tells these people that she's confessing to that this doll that is supposed to represent the Laird's male children and has killed his sons is hanging in John Taylor's house. You would think, I mean, even in the mentality now of being a police investigator, Mm-hmm. That's where you would kind of send somebody out to kind of investigate <laughs> to make sure this is true. You would think so. I mean, that's like the common sense thing to do is to go double check, make sure this is true. And they ask her, who knew about this? She says, only John Taylor mm-hmm. and Janet, Bessie and Margaret, Margaret Brody, and herself. They were yeah, the only and, ones that knew when it was made. Yeah, and just between Janet and Isabel, they gave up. 41 people that were arrested and tried. So, I mean, they were not... Exactly. They were not scared to give out names. Well, for those of you who don't know, like, Janet uh, Breedheed was... uh, After the first confession here on April 13th, she was arrested on April 14th. She was detained. Yes, she was arrested the day after Isabel's first confession. Yeah, yeah, on April 14th. And she was brought in, and she starts just talking. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. The documentation, the documentation yeah. of her entire questioning is mostly just her talking. I mean, the extent of the questions were, and then? And then? What happened then? <laughs> and what happened at this part? And what was your involvement? That's the extent of the actual questioning to Janet. Yeah, and it's interesting, Which, too, because between her and Isabel, they really just kind of let him go. Just tell us everything, with the exception of exactly. the, uh, with the exception of the common folklore. Right, right. And that seems to be one thing that Isabel really wanted to talk about. She was, that's what, that's I mean, the one thing she got more into and more excited about, is when she started talking about L fame and all you know dining with the queen of the fairies and you know when you start getting into the detailed aspects of of those parts of the confession those were the, the parts that she seemed herself to get more into than the other parts oh well, yeah i mean of course anybody that believes in fairies or even entertains the ideas of fairies would love to sit and have dinner with the queen of the fairies Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine growing up then where this is a part of folklore that you're told as a child and then believing that you sit down and have dinner with the king and the queen of the fairies. This is going to be like sitting down with the king and queen of Scotland. I mean, it's That's a easy. fascinating subject, but it's not taken seriously. Exactly. And in her confession, 
after she talks about the effigy of the, the Laird's children, they ask her who knew about the image. She says only John Taylor and Janet, Bessie and Margaret Wilson and Margaret Brody and herself. We were the only ones there when it was made. But every one of the witches and all the covens learned of it in the next meeting after it was made. All those witches, as yet untaken, still have their own power. And now they also have the power that was ours before we were taken. Now that I have no power at all. Yeah, and that's, that's the word, that, untaken. That is a fascinating statement. I mean, that tells a lot. To me, that doesn't seem like she just voluntarily, voluntarily walked herself in there and started talking. To me, it says a lot that somebody may have said something. And maybe she was brought in for questioning. It's a very good possibility. I think she was, she may not have been tortured, but I mean, in those days, it wasn't required to keep a record of torture. Exactly. If it wasn't explicitly ordered by that court. Yes. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. That's exactly what I was going to gonna touch on too. And then without, you know, with knowing that a few days before, you know, the Privy Council passed that proclamation. Anybody who was going to torture her, whether it be light or heavy torture, they're not going to report it because of that proclamation. Or even still, I mean, even if they did torture her, as long as she hadn't been on trial at that time, they weren't forced to document it at all. Exactly. They could have done whatever they wanted, And she was documented during her trial to have a limp. And it's not known whether she had it before her trial or not. Yeah, I saw it mentioned that it was possible that they could have crushed, they were crushing her legs as like a light form of torture and then making her walk on them afterward to keep her awake. I mean, walking was the normal form of torture, which Uh is crazy to say that you deprive people of sleep, water, and food for days to get a confession out of somebody, but that's what they did, and that's what they figured was a reliable form of light torture to get a confession out of a witch. I mean, if I go more than 12 hours without eating, I'm admitting the stuff that I don't know, (laughs) let alone three days. (laughs) Yeah, call that hangry. Yes. So we have no idea whether she was actually tortured or light tortured or just walked in and decided to give all this information. Mm-hmm. But that statement saying that they were taken exactly. does have a significant impact. No, I was going to say in that, and we don't know what exactly happened between, you know, the dates that, you know, she was tortured. What happened from April 13th from the first confession to May 3rd to the second confession to May 15th to the third confession, you know, and so on and so forth. It's like what happened in between those, because the second confession, she actually gives more and different information as well. Exactly. I mean, even think about that time period in between. She was most likely held in jail, right? More than likely. Yeah, that's that's what I've heard. She was she was detained, you know, and same thing with with Janet when she when she got arrested the day after. Uh, Isabel's first confession, Janet was 
arrested and contained. I can't remember exactly where or contained detained. Um, I can't remember exactly where I did see the name of it though. Um, it was in a, a castle. Yeah. Janet was detained at in shock. Inch- yeah. Okay. The that's right. Save April. Okay. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty apparent that, that Isabel was, was detained the entire time throughout her confessions for those six weeks. Yeah. Sure. And then think about what, prison was like in Scotland in 1662. It's pretty much guaranteed that if she wasn't tortured, she was at the very minimum mistreated. Oh yeah, for sure. And that's, that's that's also very guarantee. Yeah. You're guaranteed to be mistreated if you, if she wasn't tortured. And that's the thing that they never documented throughout the course of any of the confessions was her condition. I found that really interesting. Obviously she was getting food and water. She was, kept alive so i mean she was getting the bare minimum for survival but at the same time nobody ever documented like her conf- her condition like throughout the course of the six weeks right and realistically prisons usually gave the bare minimum that was like wheat whether it was bread or this funny oatmeal bland mixture and water it was yeah. enough to make you survive but not enjoy any second of it. Exactly. It was, I mean, especially in the 1600s. I mean, women were as valuable as cattle. Uh, yeah, unfortunately. So it didn't matter when she was in prison how they treated her. Nothing would have been documented, even if she were killed in prison. That's exactly right. I just think it's fascinating that they were able to get all of this from her, but that one statement... That was the one that really got me to was the word taken and untaken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the next question that this person asks her is, who are those witches yet untaken? So who are the witches we haven't got yet? Basically, yeah. Yeah. And she goes on to name all these different people. She names everyone in the coven with herself. She names 12 people. The maiden of which is Jean Martin and John Young is the officer. And she does talk about a lot about her ritualistic sex while in the coven as well, too, which I found really interesting. Yes, yes. That's a very common part of witchcraft is a sexual element. Because, I mean, even if you think about it, sex releases a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. Whether you intend to or not, you're tired after. You release that energy somewhere. So the relation with that and magic, which is solely energy-based, is very reasonable. And that, that part of it is really fascinating. The rest of her first confession is talking about shape, shape-shifting. That's when she yes. starts to get into it, and then they kind of cut her off. And they wait until the second confession for that. So who mm. knows what happened between... The end of that first confession, when she starts talking about turning into a cat or a A mouse or a hare. So what happened between then? We'll never know. I mean, she could say, I'm sorry, that was just stories I've heard and that never really happened and they were not having it. Yep, but that's the shitty part. We'll never know. Exactly. I mean, her confessions are fascinating, but they, especially after that first one where you hear all those juicy details with having sex with the devil and everything, they get a little bit dull here and there. 
because her second confession came on the third day of May in 1662. And during that, all the same people were present and everything during her confession. She says that they would sometimes meet as a coven, sometimes more, sometimes less. But a grand meeting would be held at the end of each quarter. So basically the solstices and the equinoxes. They would have a grand meeting. There were 13 people in her coven. Each one of them had a spirit to wait upon them. And she goes into detail in her second confession about each of these spirits, their nicknames for the women who controlled them, basically. And she says, I don't remember all the spirits' names, but there is one called Swine, who waits upon Margaret Wilson from Alden. He's always dressed in grass green. And said, Margaret Wilson has a nickname, Pickle Nearest the Wind. And she goes on and on and on and talks about Betsy Wilson and hers, which is Rory, who's dressed in yellow, and Isabel Nicole from Locklow. Hers is Roaring Lion, who's always dressed in sea green. And she goes on through these members of the coven. And then she finally comes to hers. The seventh spirit is called the Red Reaver. And he's my personal spirit. And he waits upon me and is always dressed in black. And I think it's funny that that's the one that she doesn't give the nickname for. Yes. All these other ones have nicknames for the witches that control them. That and Margaret Brody's spirit are the two that she does not give nicknames for. I'm sorry, it's Margaret Brody and Bessie Wilson. She doesn't Mm -hmm. give the nicknames for those ones. No, and I found that super interesting too. Right, and those are supposed to be two of her good friends during yes. that. Why you would live, leave out a nickname like Pickle Nearest the Wind, I don't <laughs> know. But, I mean, all of these nicknames are odd, at least to us, especially now. I mean, some oh, of them sure. are just silly, like Through the Cornyard, Bessie Roll, Over the Dyke with It. I mean, they're able and stout. Bessie Bold, they're silly nicknames to us. But back then, who knows? They could have held some kind of power with them. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But after she starts talking about her own personal spirit, Jack's about the eighth one belonging, or called Robert the Jacks, clothed in Dunn, he was upon Abel and Stout. And then she just stops. After she talks about the tenth spirit, named Thomas Ferry, who waits upon the master devil. Mm-hmm. It stops. And then she goes to talk about something completely different. She goes to talk about spells and powers over wind. Which yeah. is a jump from talking about personal spirits that helped you your bidding to being able to control wind. Those are totally different. And she goes to talk about spells. Yeah, and it's really interesting because, you know, I had mentioned this to you earlier. Isabel Gowdy's testimonies and her confessions there were 27 documented chants for spell castings that she gave. And this is actually more than any other documented testimony during any witch trial, any of them, which is yeah. super interesting because it proves that, I mean, I can't say it proves, but it gives more credence to the fact that whether she was totally crazy, whether she might've been sick you know, 
whatever the case might have been, she had knowledge of what she was talking about, which I found really interesting. Oh, definitely. I mean, her first one where she talks about raising the wind, having the power over wind or air as an element is something that was definitely passed down through generations of witchcraft practicing families having power over a certain element. Mm -hmm. So when she talks about, when she says we raise the wind and we take a rag of cloth and we wet it in water and we take a laundry stick and knock the rag on a stain, which is a stone. And we say three times, I knock this rag upon the stone to raise the wind in the devil's name. It shall not lie until I please again. When we wanted to lay the wind, we would dry the rag and say three times, we lay the wind in the devil's name. It shall not rise till we like to raise again. And the goats, they rhyme a little bit. And it's not exactly (laughs) something that's creative, I would say. So that's something that she could have easily just spat it off. Or known from some type of folklore and spat it off easily because it does seem to all go together. So that's not to say that she was a witch or that she actually absolutely wasn't. I mean, either one, we're never going to know, but the fact that she was able to give these makes you think a little bit. Hell yeah, it does. And then she says, after this, if that doesn't work, if the wind doesn't instantly lie after we say this, we call upon our spirit. So the spirits that we just talked about, we say to him, thief, thief, conjure the wind and cause it to lie. Mm-hmm. So that is supposed to instantly calm the wind. And she says, we have no power over rain, but we can raise the wind when we please. He made us believe that there was no God before him. And then she goes on to talk about the elf arrowheads. So again, there's kind of like another skip between that. She goes to talk about raising winds and casting spells and using her spirits and then on to something completely different. So it makes me wonder if they left certain things out. It would make you think that. If not, if not, I mean, these wouldn't seem like the details of somebody that was completely and totally 100% with it. Yeah. Because they're so different subjects. And they are, too. And, and that, her jumping around like that is just, you know, it makes you think a little bit just about maybe maybe, yeah, at, maybe at this point, you know, from being in jail and being mistreated for so long, whether she was tortured or mistreated, you know, her, maybe she was starting to get, you know, what is referred to as Stockholm Syndrome, you know? Yeah, that's definitely possible. Yeah. But also... The book that King James wrote, Demonology. Yeah, yeah. He expressly depicted the way a witch is supposed to be, which isn't accurate in any sense, let alone then. My mind kind of goes to, I wonder if the interrogators were like, all right, we don't want to hear about that. That's insignificant. What did you do that was bad? Because there's no documented question in between raising the winds, calling her spirits, knowing no God before him. And this next part where she says, as for elf arrowheads, the devil shapes them in his own hand. 
mm-hmm. and then delivers them to elf boys who shape and trim them with a sharp thing like a packing needle. When I was in elf land, I saw them shaping and making them. When I was in the elf house, they would have very, etc. shaping, and the devils gave them to us, and each of us got so many, one, etc. Those that make them are little folks, hollow and bunchbacked. They speak gruffly like. When the devil gives the bolts to us, he says, and then she goes on to say what he says. But it seems like they don't, again, they don't care. They just want to kind of gloss over it because it mentions the devil. And that's pretty much, it's it's interesting to see because the courts and the courts, the magistrate, however you want to say it, that's the subject. Like anything to do with the devil, that's what they want to hear about. Exactly. You know, it really just bothers me as somebody who likes the evidence of history. And it's so interesting because the one um, podcast that you sent me, and I can't remember the name of it. It was really, really, or no, I sent it to you. It was the second one that I sent to you. It was super dry when, <laughs> you know, it was it was really dry, but it was super interesting. I, I, I listen to a lot of obscure podcasts because some, sometimes those are great ones to listen to a lot of i listen to a lot of like historical yeah. lectures and shit but it's really interesting because like the supernatural aspect of it when you start getting into fairy lore the guy being interviewed is a for the life of me cannot remember his name if if you want to know just contact me and i can look it up it's super interesting because the guy giving the interview is a very well-respected researcher and he wasn't specifically researching uh, Isabel Gowdy, but he was researching fairy lore and folklore. It's uh, I believe the podcast is actually called folklore. I'm pretty sure. And what he says in there is he says several times over, he's like, listen, I work on facts. I work on evidence. And then like a little bit further in it, you know, he, he reiterates that fact several times, which is, which is great. Cause that's pretty much what I do. That's, that's what I'm into. And it's so cool because towards the end of the interview, he starts talking about when he really started digging deep into researching fairy lore and fairy magic and the, the, the fairy queen L fame. He said he had one of his first uh, supernatural or paranormal experiences. I don't know why that I thought that was super interesting, but even he in the interview is like, no, he's like this, this really happened. As soon as I started researching this subject, things started happening. And it was really cool because he actually gives one really good example of like an almost, uh, not even almost, it was a full fledged, like paranormal, paranormal experience. But you know, the whole point of it, of, of me saying this is just the fact that even to people who, you know, don't take this stuff seriously, who are just in it for the research and in it for the informational purposes, um, for him to go out of his way to say that I thought was, was really, really intriguing. I don't know. I just had to, I don't know why I had to bring that up uh, because me and you traded like a couple obscure you know, lectures and stuff like that, because I didn't only look for any information on Isabel Gaudi. I looked for information on the 
uh, Scottish witch trials, the English witch trials, the Norwegian witch trials, Swedish witch trials, every, every single thing I could imagine because I wanted to compare the information and some of the, some of the lore that was in a lot of the testimonies. And I mean, unfortunately there wasn't a lot out there. It was super interesting when you get into that aspect of what, what certain people believe and what they don't, because this guy straight up comes out and he's like, listen, I work on facts and evidence. And he's very adamant about that. But at the same time you hear him, he's like, no, he's like, weird things started happening when I started actually researching this topic in particular, everything to do with the, with the fairy lore and the folklore and of, of fairies and stuff like that. I just thought that was super interesting. Oh, definitely. And for a warning to anybody that decides to look up fairies, <laughs> The hard part is, is it differs so much from region to region. I mean, Scottish is going to be very different from Irish or Welsh or Swedish or Norse or any of those. They're all going to have different legends. Even Mm -hmm. of the fairy queen that she talks about is very different just between the highlands and the lowlands of Scotland. Oh, yeah. I mean, just those two, which are in the same region, depict her as being so different. And a lot of people assume a connection between her and a goddess, which her name is Nicknavin. I think that's how you pronounce it. And it means daughter of the divine. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Again, I will say I'm American. I don't know how to pronounce anything. So (laughs) her name means daughter of the divine. And in some cultures, she's a protective deity. She's connected with Samhain. She communicates with the dead. And she's related mm-hmm. to witchcraft and magic. And in the Highlands, she's more seen as that nice deity. The one that yes. will bestow wisdom and magical ability to where in the Lowlands, she would be quite aggressive. She might curse or just in general, be mean or hard to deal with and might curse you. So those two depictions are exact opposite, and they're right next to each other. That's That in itself, fairy lore is a total... Almost a rabbit hole. It blows your mind. <laughs> it really does. Oh, my gosh, yes. There is so much going on with it. Yes, and once you get into one culture and you go into another, into another... Before you know it, you've got 500 different beings that all have similarities, but they're all different in different ways, and you're still in Eastern Europe. Yeah, and that's just in Eastern Europe. And apparently, they don't like being called fairies. Uh, That was my understanding as well, but I figured I'd just let you go and just, you know, refer to them as that. (laughs) I don't tend to get along with those energies, so I will call them whatever I want. But for most people that want to get along with those energies, it's fair folk. They prefer that term. Yep. And you have to know specifically what fair folk you're dealing with. If you suspect you're having dealings with fairies to know how to treat them, because if it's one that likes wine and you give it beer, you might end up with no tomatoes. Or if it's one that likes beer and not liquor, you might not be able to grow anything in your yard for the next five years. So, if this is something you believe in and or you suspect and you want to believe in, 
And that's something to kind of look out for. <laughs> yeah. But your shit. Yes, do a little research. Yeah, it'd the, probably be pretty The bear folk are not something to be trifled with. Exactly. So, jumping a little bit forward, getting into the third confession. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting in the third confession because she elaborates a little bit more on her relationship with the devil. But this is where she actually names the people that she was involved in killing. And she also names the people that the members of her coven actually killed. And she's pretty specific on who killed who. And I mean, it gets to the point where this is the first time in the confessions where she expresses regret for some of the things that she did and some of the people that she, that she did hurt. This might go back to, you know, she tormented, uh, you know, she claims to have tormented, you know, a local minister by the name of Harry Forbes for a really long time, uh, her and her coven and stuff like that. But she specifically states that he could he could not be harmed. And it's really weird because in the confession, you don't know if it's the words of the court or the words of her. But it, it states something along the lines of he was protected by God, basically. And I thought that was really interesting. And like I, was, I told you earlier, the third confession is the one that I probably find the more interesting because that, this is where she really starts implicating the other people in murder. And she also implicates herself in murder. You know, the torment of, of Harry Forbes. And, you know, that's also one of the theories about her coming forward that maybe she felt guilt because she tried, they tried to kill this guy so many times, but they were never successful in it. Like I said, you never know if it's the words of the court or the words of her where they start stating that, you know, Harry Forbes was a man of God, so therefore he was protected by God. But at the same time, in this time period, for the listeners who understand, for the listeners who don't, I'm I'm not just saying this, this, this is fact. Like, a lot of times in this time frame, people still held their pagan traditions and performed what might be referred to as magic. They did, they worked with herbs, you know, they were, there were still cunning folk in the, the regions of this area and in England and cunning folk for those who don't know is basically the wise man or the wise woman uh, in that area who they were healers and they would use either herbs or energy to, try to help people and try to heal them. But a lot of these people were still Christians. Uh, they were going to church, but they were still practicing the old religion while they were still Christian. So it's really interesting when you start getting into it. And it's it's so much to actually explain in one episode. That literally could be an episode all in itself is that particular time period and the mixing of the old religion along with, you know, Christianity when it started coming forth. But uh, what, what were some of your thoughts on the, on the uh, third confession? I have her talking about the winter of 1660 with Harry Forbes. When Harry Forbes was sick, they made a bag of galls, flesh, guts, toads, barley, finger and toenail clippings, liver of a hair, bits of cloth. Yep. They mixed it all together Deep it in water overnight, minced together, and then they put the water with Satan with them, along with a spell that they recited. They had learned the words from the devil, 
They'll fall down upon their knees, their hair down over their shoulders and their eyes, their hands lifted up with their eyes fixed steadfastly on the devil and said the words correctly three times against Mr. Harry Forbes recovering from his sickness. So they were trying to keep him sick this mm-hmm. entire time and just kind of drag out his sickness. But apparently that never worked. I mean, they have detailed accounts of them basically killing his children and the other man's children as well. And there's just something they can't seem to be able to kill these two people. So that puts a little thought in my head. She goes on to say during the night, they crept into his room. They had their hands smeared with the mixture from that bag. And they they swung it over Harry Forbes as he was sick in his bed. And during the day, they sent one of their members who was most familiar and intimate with him to swing the bag over him as well because they had not succeeded during the night. Mm. And they don't really say anything else about what happened with that. No, they really don't. And I'm yeah, frustrated because they don't. <laughs> like, out of all the stuff I read, when you guys, when we get to the end of Isabel, her story personally, it's so frustrating. That, and it's amazing because she's telling this account of being in his room and doing these things to him. He's one of the witnesses during her confession. Yeah. Yep. That is the first person they mention is Master Harry Forbes. So he's sitting there listening to this woman talking about <laughs> sending somebody to his room while he's sick, trying to keep him sick. I think I think that's going to have an effect on her trial. Exactly. Exactly. Like I had mentioned, like the third confession is where she actually shows starts showing her first signs of remorse, which mm-hmm. you know it's the more human aspect of her because you know we don't know if. Isabel walked into the courtroom, whether she was arrested, you know, if she did voluntarily walk in, uh, you know, was it because she started feeling guilty for the things that she was doing? You know, did she want attention? Because she was literally a nobody before this. I, I got it. I can't stress enough. Isabel Gowdy is a central figure, literally known to some people as the uh, patron saint of witchcraft. Because the of the, the detailed witches. accounts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Queen of the Witches. Because of the detailed accounts that she gives in this courtroom. And there's no record of her before the April, you know, before her marriage, you know, to uh, John Gilbert. But even then, there's still not really much about her. You know, they know what her husband did. They know that she was poor. They know that, you know, he had a small cabin. He had a little bit of land because of the labor work that he did. But when she came in or was arrested and brought in this courtroom and started giving these testimonies and these confessions and in this kind of detailed fashion, everything like time stopped to listen to what she had to say for the most part. Uh, Just so everybody knows, the fourth confession was was really just a pretty much a reiteration of the first two confessions. And then, you know, a little bit more on the third confession. It was, it was just a wrap up of pretty much everything she stated. And it should be known that what she said during the first three confessions, her story never changed. It was consistent the entire time that she was incarcerated and giving these confessions. And that was one of the, one of the facts that really got me 
Uh, you know, because, you know, when we go back to the torture aspect while she was incarcerated, you know, with that kind of uh, trauma, I want to say, uh, you know, something something of that nature, your 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 head's not going to be straight. You're going to forget things if you're lying. And I thought that said a lot. I don't know. How did you how did you feel about that, Jessica? Well, honestly, with her whole trial, it was uh, it was extremely <laughs> frustrating. Very going through everything. Like you said, there's no records of her. There's yeah. no record that she even actually existed other than her trials. Mm-hmm. There's one. There's one record, and that's a commission for investigation. Mm-hmm. And that was July of 1643. That's 19 years before her confession. And that's the weird part, too, is she doesn't even admit to being involved in any of that before 1647 so it's really interesting right. to know who she might have been associated with or even related to that might have been in the public eye you know for being a suspected you know witch or anything of that nature so that's that's super interesting i think yeah definitely and a lot of her confession i mean she talks about spells and incantations and folklore folk magic to basically mm-hmm. heal in a lot of her trial. I mean, the accounts with the devil and everything take up a majority, but as we've all seen from me reading directly from her confession, there's skips and jumps through her confession consistently. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Basically seeming to what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as she starts talking about the better parts, of witchcraft, the healing, the helping, the fairy folk, even. Mm -hmm. They want to skip past that because they don't care about those parts. They want to know the dirty details. And that's what's extremely frustrating about her confessions. It's really frustrating, too, because after all this happens, there's no record of her being executed, and there's no record of her being let go. It stands to reason that, yeah, her and Janet probably were strangled and burned at the stake, you know, with with several, you know, with thousands of other witches. But at the same time, somebody of Isabel's magnitude, and I, you know, I use that word for lack of a better term, but somebody with her, I guess you could say, reputation after giving these confessions you would think that somebody would have wanted to cash in on the entire story. And that would include, you know, her execution or the fact that the court let her go and she went back to her obscurity, you know, and it's so frustrating because you don't know what happened to her at all. Like we know she was a real person. She's documented to have existed she was in court. She gave four confessions in detail without messing up any information. She kept the same stories the entire time over the course of whatever was happening to her while she was incarcerated. And then nothing, just absolutely nothing. It's just so frustrating. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what do you think? What do you think happened to her? I think if she were put to death, if she were strangled, burned, hanged, doesn't matter. If she had died in some way during this trial or after, 
they would have documented it because for yeah. them, especially during that time, it would have been a hooray for us type of thing. It would have been a victory. They would have wanted to document that. Exactly. So the fact that there's no documentation whatsoever of her death kind of strikes a nerve. I mean, like that <laughs> podcast we referenced earlier, the ethical podcast with John Callow, he makes a very, very good point that, some, like you had said, somebody would have cashed in on this. Mm-hmm. Somebody would have said something at some point, dug up some record somewhere. Or even if it was 20 years but, down the road after she died, somebody would have exactly. written something about it. Because even even for her exactly. time period, she was, I don't want to say famous, but when she was giving these confessions, she was known. Like, this was a she major, was, major thing. She was the OJ of the 17th century Scotland. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So somebody would have yeah. documented her death, but nobody ever did. So because of the the proclamation that was put into place three days before um, she gave her first confession, a lot of the, you know, theories put forward are that she ended up being let go because mm-hmm. when she walked in there and, and she literally asked for death, like that's, yeah. she asked for death. She said, put me in front of the arrows or whatever you can think of that's worse because she said she deserved it. And that goes back to the third confession where she starts expressing that remorse for some of the things that she did and the murders that she was involved with. But I think that might entail to that proclamation where you weren't allowed to execute a person who actually had a death wish, you know, who walked in and was wishing for death. I, I think that proclamation put forth on, on April 10th, 1662, I think that played a big factor in the outcome of Isabel Gaudi. I think that right there proved that, like, let her go because she, she wants to die. At the same time with her admitting that she did want to die, you know, or whether she did or didn't, I can't say she did because, you know, we weren't there. We don't know. But with her openly saying, put me in front of the arrows or whatever worse you can come up with. She was ready to go. And I think that with that proclamation, they were, they were saying, let her go. Like she, this is one of the three things that we cannot execute uh, an accused witch for. I don't know. Personally, I personally think that, she went right back into obscurity. And I mean, there's no documentation of her ever having kids. We don't exactly know how old she was. Uh, Obviously she was sexually active, you know, because, um, you know, she was fucking the devil. So, and she was very, (laughs) very detailed about it. You know what I'm saying? But yeah, I don't know for me personally. I, I honestly think that I think she walked away from it. I really do. And there's, I don't think there's any record of Janet, anything ever happening to her either, even though her uh, detainment was also documented. So I don't know. What, what do you think? Yeah. Well, you're right. There's no documentation about Janet's demise or her being set free. There's absolutely nothing. There's a documentation of her confession 
mm-hmm. which is mostly her just going on and on and on about the same. I mean, it's the same exact stuff that Isabel was going on with. She mm-hmm. was introduced to it from her mother and her her mother in law and her husband, and she mm-hmm. implicated in her one confession. She named thirty nine different people that were yeah. involved in this one coven. Also yeah. stating that she had ha- been having a sexual relationship with the devil, and she named a bunch of other people who were whether they were inspiration or parts of the coven, whether they were dead or alive. And then her confession just ends. And yep. there's no actual proof whether she lived or died. And with Isabel, at the end of her confession, they at least have something. After her fourth confession, all of her paperwork was sent to the Scottish Privy Council. Yes. And that was during the summer of 1662. Eight gentries decided on want to send back for her sentencing. So I can only imagine it took a while for them to make sense of her case because that's a lot to take in. And that's the thing. Didn't they, didn't they all agree to find her guilty and, you know, yeah, I was pretty sure they stamped it like in July, I think of 1662, like they gave it the approval that yes, this woman is a witch but then there's nothing. <laughs> there's like nothing after that. Oh, yeah. I mean, the <sighs> document itself that returned to Aldern, it had 15 clauses in it. The first part of it basically tells the local authorities, good job. We agree with you completely. She is guilty. And then the clauses start. Mm-hmm. They ask if they've considered, is there any evidence that she was depressed? Yeah. Is there any evidence that she was deluded? Is she suicidal? Has she been coerced? Has she been in any way tortured or deprived of her sleep? So if any of these happened, then they okay. figured that they should probably show leniency and not yes, help her. Exactly. Her timing, if if she did volunteer volunteer that information, if she did walk into the courtroom voluntarily, her timing was impeccable. Yeah. I mean, that would be like getting a letter from the state Supreme Court saying that you should still show leniency. So mm-hmm. you're not going to really go against that. Most yeah, exactly. likely, if they let her go to an extent. I mean, she probably <clears throat> had a name following her. People probably sure. watched her for a while. She may have and moved. That, yeah, and that's not to say she didn't change her name, too. Exactly. And back then, it was easy to. You could just start going by a different name, move somewhere, yeah, exactly. and... Exactly. You go from Isabel Gowdy to Janet Murray. Yeah. It doesn't matter. You can go by anything you want to. Yep. That's one of the most frustrating parts of, of this story, is just you... There's we no don't closure. Know there's no closure whatsoever. And this is, like, her confessions in general. I mean, she is regarded as a central figure for, for witchcraft, even now, 20, 21st century. Like I had told you, you know, I had been familiar with, with Isabel for, you know, years up until actually diving in really, really deep into a lot of the detailed aspects. And I just thought, it, I just always thought that was super fascinating. Her testimony as, you know, the renunciation of 
of her former religion and her, you know, baptism, so to speak, you know, stuff like that. You know, I do have some information on on some traditional witchcraft stuff, and we're I'm going to read it to you, and we're going to kind of compare it mm-hmm. to what Isabel was saying uh, with with her stuff. You know, before we start getting into the facts and like the theories that are, that are all going to kind of be rolled up into one, because there are there are a few theories that that do hold some ground. But the first off is going to be. The Witch's Rights of Renunciation. All right, join me and Jessica for part two when we dive really deep into the traditions, the facts, the theories of witchcraft in general, and Isabel Gowdy herself, and whether or not she actually was a witch, and whether she lived or died as a result of these confessions.